I love it when guys do what you tell them to do. More specifically, you say something needs to be adjusted, needs to be tweaked, and then they do tweak it, they do adjust it, and it works out just like you said. Give live credit to the St. Louis Blues for what they did last night as they even their best of seven Stanley Cup final series at two games apiece with a 4-2 win over Boston and St. Louis last night. It is a sports pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad to have you along. We've got basketball. We've got hockey. That's where we're going to start. We've also got auto racing coming up. You're going to enjoy that interview. That's coming up over the course of the next hour right here on the Sports Pen with me, Tanner Hoops. Glad to have you along on this Tuesday afternoon. Well, I tell you what, let's go back to yesterday on the show. I talked about how St. Louis had just gotten thoroughly outplayed in Game 3, how they weren't getting enough from their top guys, how they were allowing Boston to dominate them on the power play. Let's go back and hear that segment from yesterday's show. Tonight, Tarasenko has to be better. Schwartz has to be better. O'Reilly has to be better. Your top line has got to start producing if you're going to have a chance in this series. The top dogs for St. Louis finally answered the call. Vladimir Tarasenko with his third goal this series, 11th overall in the playoffs. Ryan O'Reilly had maybe his best night of his career last night. Certainly in the playoffs, but last night might have been the best night of Ryan O'Reilly's career. couple of goals, including the game winner, got the team on the board 43 seconds into the game and then found the back of the net with 10.38 to play in the third period. He was on fire last night. He knew he had to step up, and he did. What's more, we talked about the power play yesterday. Boston was 4-for-4 four four in Game 3 on the man advantage. St. Louis is actually outscoring Boston in this series 5-on-5. Five You knew Boston was going to be the favorite coming into it. But could this series really be decided by the discipline of St. Louis? If the Blues can simply not take dumb penalties and stay out of the penalty box, could they win this series? If they neutralize or take away Boston's power play, is St. Louis the new favorite? Because now it's a best-of-three series. Sure, two games would be in Boston, but St. Louis has been better on the road than they have been at home. Boston had two opportunities on the power play last night. They did not score. St. Louis's penalty kill has been really good in these playoffs outside of Game 3. I tell you who else had a really good game last night. He's not getting a lot of credit for. Zach Sanford. He was named the number 3 star. He was all over the ice last night. If you're watching him, number 12 in blue, he was pretty tough to miss. He finished with one assist. Didn't stuff the point sheet by any means last night. But he was still an impact on the game. So you go back to that question, is the key to this series simply discipline for St. Louis? Are they the better team 5-on-5 against the Boston Bruins? Right now the numbers are saying yes. Now will Boston get their mojo back here in a couple of days when they go back home? Absolutely they will. They'll figure things out, they'll tweak some stuff. Gronk I'm sure will be front and center, right up against the glass, wearing his Bruins jersey, Belichick maybe waving the flag again. Whenever one team is able to take a game in the series, the other coach is always able to answer. It's a chess match between Bruce Cassidy and Craig Berube. And I guarantee Cassidy will have some answers as Boston comes back home for Game 5. It was largely the role players for each team through the first two games of this series. They split. Now the top lines are starting to get going for each team. And they also split. We are 2-2, essentially in a best-of-three series now. We know that St. Louis is going to host at least one more game this cup final, last night being their first ever home win in the Stanley Cup final round. They have been a fantastic atmosphere for this event. It's been a lot of fun seeing the city of St. Louis come alive. Plus, Patrick Mahomes in attendance a few nights ago. We are starting to see the trend of quarterbacks, NFL quarterbacks. Kansas City obviously doesn't have hockey. St. Louis doesn't have football. So the Chiefs and the Blues start to adopt each other. You're seeing the trend of quarterbacks going to other city sporting events like basketball or hockey, and they get into a beer-chugging contest with their offensive linemen. We've seen Patrick Mahomes do it. We've seen Aaron Rodgers do it. We've seen Matt Stafford, Mitch Trubisky. Marcus Mariota tried it a few years ago when Nashville was in the Stanley Cup Final back in 2017. He tried to start the trend. Didn't do very well at it. But I tell you what, just like football... They are all put to shame and still chasing Tom Brady. If you haven't seen that video yet that's making its way around the internet, Tom Brady on the beach just pounding a cold one. 
does it like it's nobody's business. Whether it be winning Super Bowls or chugging beer, Tom Brady's still setting the standard. You think about the quarterback matchups we could see getting in a beer-chugging contest. Obviously, Brady beats Mahomes if you do this matchup. Boston against St. Louis or the Kansas City area. I'm hoping Pittsburgh can make their way back to the cup final. Maybe we'll get to see Ben Roethlisberger. I feel like he could give his offensive linemen a run for their money. How about the Washcaps? If they're able to find their way back to the Stanley Cup final, try to go for their second cup in three years next year, will we see Dwayne Haskins? Case Keenum, maybe. Whoever can win that starting job. College softball, the Women's College World Series getting underway last night in Oklahoma City, and it was a real butt-kicking. You have the top two teams in the country. We all know Oklahoma, UCLA, they are by far the best two teams in the country, and they're the ones who meet up for the national title. It was a butt-kicking, though. How did it work out that UCLA thumps the Sooners 16-3 to last night to take a one nothing series lead in the best-of-three series? So now the Sooners got to win tonight, and tomorrow to clinch their third crown in four years. But how about the job that UCLA has done? We've known how good of a team they are. But do we really? This is something that's not getting talked about enough. It's making its way around social media, what have you. I want to make sure my listeners are aware of it, and this gets the recognition that it deserves. Sunday night, UCLA's Rachel Garcia was the hero, both in the center circle as the pitcher and in the batter's box as an offensive player. Sunday night... She threw 10 innings, struck out 16 on 179 pitches, and then she hit a walk-off home run in the 10th inning to send her team to the national championship. We have seen outstanding performances in this women's college softball tournament on both sides, offensively and defensively. Women's College World Series continues tonight. UCLA with a chance to go for the national title. They can clinch it with a win over Oklahoma. That is available on ESPN-TV. The last few minutes before we go to break, I want to focus heavily on baseball. We're going to have a big baseball show today, but I want to go to the MLB draft because the first round kicked off last night. Actually, the first couple of rounds, rounds 3 through 10, will continue on this afternoon. actually got started a few hours ago. But I tell you what, the Orioles surprised nobody by taking Adley Rutschman first overall. Rutschman is in a league of his own. There has not been a first overall draft pick this easy, this clear, since Carlos Correa in 2012. Three years later, Correa was in the big leagues winning rookie of the year. Now, people make jokes on Twitter. Pray for Adley Rutschman. One like equals one prayer. Rutschman's going to the Baltimore Orioles. That's it for his career. We're never going to hear from him again. Well, people aren't talking about how the Orioles have a whole new front office. They have a whole new managerial staff. Brandon Hyde in his first year as manager, he replaces Buck Showalter. Mike Elias is the new general manager. And a lot of people don't realize it, but he was the executive behind the Houston Astros rebuild. Think back to six, seven years ago, around the time that Correa was drafted, back when Bo Porter was still the manager. Astros were the laughing stock of baseball. They turned it around and went from worst to division winners to World Series champs in about five years. Mike Elias was the architect behind that rebuild. He's now the general manager in Baltimore, and he's getting one of the best weapons taken first overall in how long? The first few picks really played out like we thought they would. Bobby Witt drafted by Kansas City. Bobby Witt Jr., that is. His father, Bobby Sr., also drafted top five by the Royals. They become the first ever father-son combination taken top five by the same team. Andrew Vaughn ends up getting picked up by the White Sox. J.J. Blade is picked up by the Marlins. So that left the Tigers drafting fifth. They had their sights set on Riley Green, and he's a guy they've been scouting since he was 15 years old. Would they have taken Vaughn if he fell to them? They probably would have. But they're pretty happy with Riley Green, and Tiger fans, you should be too. The Tigers have so much pitching depth in the minor league right now. They're going to be a scary team to watch here in the coming years. They're going through some growing pains right now, I know. It's going to pay off big time. And likely so is drafting Riley Green. The Tigers have been scouting him since he was 15 years old. They were referred to him by Florida head coach Kevin O'Sullivan. They take him fifth overall out of high school, Haggerty High School in Orlando, where his dad is a hitting instructor. And since the Tigers have been watching him, they've seen him fill out physically. They've seen him mature. They've seen his defense grow. He's becoming an all-around player, an all-around weapon. 
It's going to take a few years for him to get up here, but the Tigers have watched him under a microscope for almost half a decade. No player has been more highly scouted by one organization than Riley Green and the Tigers. They know exactly what they're getting with this guy. Tiger fans should feel extremely confident that Leland Trammell, Avila and company made the right decision. We had to wait a little bit longer to get the Brewers pick. They selected 28th overall, and they took a left-handed pitcher out of Mississippi State named Ethan Small. That wasn't who a lot of people were thinking the Brewers had their eye on, even though Director of Scouting Todd Johnson says they did look at him last year. They just didn't see the level of dominance that they see in him now. Small's a redshirt junior, standing six foot three, 190 pounds. He's got a fastball that sits around the low 90s, but his changeup is effective, and he mixes it in with a solid curveball. He throws every once in a while. He was the SEC Pitcher of the Year this year. He went 9-2 and two with a 188 ERA and 16 starts. He led the conference in strikeouts with 160 and 96 innings. He is a Tommy John success story. He had reconstructive surgery after his freshman season, but he's bounced back nicely. And keep in mind, his season is still alive. The Bulldogs are going to host a Super Regional in Starkville this weekend. He's going to be a big part of that. So Brewers fans, if you want to see what you're getting... Tune in this weekend. Check out the Bulldogs in Starkville. By the way, this is just the first time since 2011 that the Brewers selected a pitcher out of college with their top overall pick. That year they took Taylor Jungman out of Texas. So again, Small didn't show up on a lot of Brewers fans' radar, maybe not even as a first-rounder on a lot of draft boards. But the dominance was there. He's got everything you want in a pitcher. Got to work on getting that fastball up. Got to get a little bit bigger. But the Brewers believe him to be the consummate pitcher, that everything that you want to work with is there. This is a guy that you can bring up through the ranks, develop as a project. You get a good pitching coach paired up with him, and he's got the stuff. With that, let's take our first time out. we got much more baseball to break down. The Superior Land Baseball League threw the first pitch in the 2019 season last night. I've got a guest from the league joining me next to break it down for you in the sports pen on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to The Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad to have you along. The Superior Land Baseball League is back. A league for about 100 adults in the central UP area. A lot of guys with high school baseball experience put on a quality program out there. We're joined by one of the officials from the league, Zach Sorrell. Zach, opening day yesterday, able to get a few games in. Thanks for being here. Tell me a little how opening day went. Yeah, Tanner, thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to come on here and talk with you and kind of spread the word about our league. Um, opening day went uh, went really well. You know, we had, we had nice weather and um, we had a lot of guys out having a good time playing baseball. And uh, We had games up in Nagani and in Gwynn last night. Uh, unfortunately, the game down in Channing was canceled due to uh, poor field conditions, but they've rescheduled that for Thursday night. So if you're in the area, head on down to Channing for some great baseball. Um, the game in Nagani was uh, was a great game. It was tied 4-4 in the seventh inning, and uh, there was a three-run home run and then another run in the top of the seventh to give Coel Banker an 8-4 to uh, win over the Nagani Blasters. Um, and then my team... Uh, we're Joe Leonard State Farm. We played against the defending champion, uh, the Mavericks, and the Mavericks were in midseason form and uh, had two home runs and some stellar pitching. And uh, unfortunately, we lost thirteen to zero to them. Uh, but it was a lot of fun still, and it was a good game with a lot of action. Well, let's talk about the Superior Land League and how you came to be. A few years ago, the Michigan Baseball League closed down. You guys kind of picked up from there. Tell me about the formation of your league and how you've seen it grow. Yeah, so actually myself, James Larson, and Preston Hutchins, we were driving down to what was supposed to be a Michigan game, I believe down in Peshtigo perhaps, and uh, the game got canceled due to low numbers and um, we just kind of saw the writing on the wall that, you know, the league was probably not going to be in existence much longer. So we all sat down, the three of us, and kind of brainstormed. And, you know, the idea kind of came about, like, you know, what if we start our own league here in Marquette? And uh, we kind of got the ball rolling with that and kind of started the preparations. And, um, you know, the Michigan League did fold there shortly after. And, um, you know, we just wanted to make sure that, you know, that guys in the, Central UP still had an opportunity to play baseball. 
Yeah, tell me about how you've seen baseball grow in the UP. Obviously, the focus here is going to go on fall and winter sports. Spring sports are tough to get in with weather and what have you. But you've kept baseball alive in a lot of sense in an area where maybe it's kind of an afterthought. Yeah, baseball, it seems like, especially for adults, I mean, once once you age out of, uh, you know, American Legion or even high school for some kids, there's really not a lot of opportunities to keep playing. And, you know, the Michigan League was great, but that was still only one team here in Marquette County and one down in Dickinson County. And, uh, you know, there wasn't a, uh, there wasn't a lot of opportunity to continue on playing for a lot of guys who love the game. And, um, you know, fortunately, we have, you know, approximately 100 guys playing baseball and um, our goal was really just to have a quality league with low commitment and low travel. And um, that was the one difficult part with the Michigan League was that there was a lot of travel involved and it was uh, possibly Tuesdays and Thursdays and Fridays and weekends. And it was a lot of commitment and a lot of time. Uh, so our league setup makes it really easy to commit. Uh, it's low cost. It's low travel. Uh, it's just a great way to you know, keep your playing career going after Legion Baseball. Well, early on, you probably didn't start out with 100 guys. Tell me about how you've seen it grow over the past few years. No, honestly, the first year that we had played, um, our expectation was just to try to have four teams. Um, that was kind of that was kind of the goal. The first year, we ended up with six teams. Um, it went way better than what we thought it was going to go, to be honest. Um, there was a lot of interest, and there was definitely a need there uh, for, for a league of, of this sort. Uh, last year we went down to five full-time teams. Um, one of the guys who ran one of our teams uh, moved out of the area. And, um, there, there was nobody really to kind of take over that role. I mean, it's a lot of work running a team. Um, but this season we're up, we're back up to six full-time teams. Um, and at, we're actually looking at, at the possibility of expanding to eight teams for next season. Tell me about uh, the schedule format and what have you. It looks like you've got games every Monday night at three particular fields in Gwynn, Nagani, and Channing. Yeah, we play each Monday night. Uh, first pitch is 6.30 in Marquette County, uh, and we first pitch uh, is at 7 o'clock down, at, down in Channing. Uh, that's primarily because they're in the central time zone. It's a little bit later, plus with a little travel. But, yeah, we play each Monday night. Uh, we don't play the week of the 4th of July just because we understand people have families, other commitments, and we try not to take up the entire summer. But um, but Monday night just seems to work real well. There's not much else going on as far as softball or fast pitch. and uh, It's also not a weekend day, which works really well, too, because people could still have their weekend fun over the summertime as well. Yeah, and you get to expand the uh, season a little bit, going well into August. Then you get, I like this, you get a crossover championship. You have your champion play for the UP championship against the Twilight League winner. Tell me about that and how that came to be. Yeah, so it just kind of worked out with the Twilight League. Uh, throughout Michigan, uh, we typically send a team up to the Stanton tournament, which is kind of the Twilight League's uh, big tournament they have up there. And that was... Um, just an idea that that we had, um, kind of driven by James Larson. He's kind of the driving force with a lot of this stuff. Uh, he just kind of just he, you know we kind of had the idea, and um, we talked to the guys up up north in the Twilight League. And um, basically, what happens is you know our winner faces their winner for the UP championship. We had a trophy made up, and um, it's just kind of between the two teams to play. Last year, I think they played in September. It was a little later. Uh, but the first year we traveled up to Stanton, and this last year they came down here and we played in Gwynn, and um, Marquette County Mavericks won both the UP championship and the league championship last year. These teams, do they end up being self-managed? Do you have player managers, or do you have coaches that work with them? How does this all work? Typically, most of the teams have player managers. Um, you know, a lot of us are in the game for the love of the game, and um, it's hard to just sit on the sideline when you have an opportunity to play, too. So a lot of guys uh, play and manage the team on both sides of it. Um, yeah, it's a, lot of, it's a lot of fun. It's really hard to stay off that field when you have an opportunity to play. Well, and you bring the competitive atmosphere, and that's something that not a lot of areas have, different than your typical beer league. I mean, you guys are going hard and being competitive and giving guys that opportunity to continue to stay involved in competitive baseball. Yeah, it's very competitive. Um, almost all of our players uh, had a lot of success at the high school level, and actually many of the guys played at the college level, um, whether that's um, moving to the area after school or 
returning back to the area uh, after they went and left and went to school. Um, but, yeah, it's very competitive. Um, you can't hang a curveball over the middle of the plate and expect it not to end up on the wrong side of the fence. Um, last night, I think between the two games, we had three home runs total. Um, yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of action. It's a lot of smart baseball. Uh, you're talking bunts and squeezes and delayed steals. And, uh, yeah, it's it's not just beer league. I mean, you have to you have to pay attention to what's going on, and there's a lot to it. Talking with Zach Sorrell, he's a league official for the Superior Land Adult Baseball League here in the Upper Peninsula. Zach, tell me about some plans that you have maybe to continue to grow the league. Maybe if you mentioned you're thinking about expansion with a couple of teams. Tell me about some ways that you want to continue to see the league not only grow but thrive as well. Yeah, so our main goal is obviously to provide a quality league, so that's the most important thing. If we can expand and keep expanding and get more guys involved, that's only a plus. But we really have to keep in mind that we have to keep commitments low, we have to keep costs low, and we have to keep travel low. Um, you know, that was kind of something that we saw with the Michigan League. There was so much involved in it, uh, it was really hard to get guys to commit to that. So uh, there's definitely a need in the area. I mean, Marquette County and Dickinson County, we love baseball for sure. And we want to give as many people the opportunity to play as possible as long as we can keep it um, a quality competitive league. Um, so we're looking at possibly um, adding a couple teams in the future. There's a lot of interest. There's a lot of guys that want to play. Um, unfortunately, it's difficult when you have 15 or 16 guys on a team in a seven-inning game to get everybody on the field and to get everybody enough playing time. So it's kind of that balance of having enough guys so we're not having forfeits and we're not missing out on games, but yet still giving everybody the opportunity to get on the field and play. Yeah, I was going to ask about the size of the rosters, what have you. Do you expect to have more than 100 participants next year? You know, it's kind of hard to tell because we do have a lot of college-age kids that play as well. So there is a little bit of um, team mix-up from year to year. Some of the teams stay fairly consistent. The Marquette County Mavericks uh, basically have the exact same team that they had last year, uh, actually the last two seasons, basically, um, to where my team, you know, we had a handful of kids who played at uh, – who played – up at Northern on their club team, and they've since graduated and moved on. and um, That's kind of something as well, but uh, honestly, there's a lot of people in the sports world and in the sports community here in Marquette County that don't know about our league. And I think once we get the word out, I think there's a lot of people who love baseball who don't know about us that if, if given the opportunity, would love to come out and play again. So do you go out and recruit somebody to be a part of your league, or do they sign up? How does that all work? Uh, so generally speaking, it's a lot of word of mouth. It's a lot of um, friends who come out and play or, you know, certain players know other players and, uh, you know, and they get them to come try out and play for a team. But uh, there is a fair amount of um, we'll get an email or a phone call from uh, someone kind of out of the woodworks who doesn't know anybody who just wants to come play. So we'll invite them to come throw and hit with us a little bit and kind of meet some of the guys. And if they're a fit, then they're more than welcome to come play. And um, it just kind of depends on, on how it works. But generally speaking, uh, you know, the baseball community around Marquette is uh, somewhat tight. I know especially in Nagani, there's a lot of guys who used to play for Nagani, who graduated from Nagani that are that are in this league and play. You know, they're all kind of friends and buds, which makes it even more fun to, you know, to be back on the field again with guys you play high school baseball with. Tell me about the rules, the gameplay that goes into the Superior Land League. Is it nine innings strictly? Do you have a wooden bat, aluminum bat rule, things like that? So uh, we play seven innings every game. Um, the UP championship is nine innings. That's the only exception. Uh, we're a wood bat league. Uh, we try to do the best we can to keep the league um, kind of true to the game. Uh, obviously, we have safety rules because we all have jobs and families and careers and such, but uh, we typically go with American League rules. It's pretty standard. Um, nothing too crazy out of the ordinary, but, yeah, it's wood bat, which is, which is a lot of fun. Well, if I wanted to get signed up right now, and maybe we've got a few people listening that would like to as well, tell me how they can do that. Yeah, so we've got a couple different ways. You can go on Facebook and search Superior Land Baseball, and you can contact us through the Facebook page. That's something that I monitor and we keep a pretty good eye on. Uh, or else you could call myself uh, at 458-5579, or you could contact James Larson. He would be the other league official, and James's phone number is uh, 360-3674. Zach Sorrell is an official with the Superior Land Baseball League day through the first pitch last night. Zach, wishing you and the league all the best. Would love to come check you out sometime. Thank you so much, Tanner. I appreciate it. 
Let's take a time out. We've got more baseball, college level, coming up next in the Sports Pen and ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen, weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad to have you along. Here is your Sports Center update. Minnesota Vikings Chief Operating Officer Mike Warren has been named the new commissioner of the Big Ten Conference. He replaces the retiring Jim Delaney. Warren becomes the first African-American commissioner of a Power Five conference. Michigan News, the Colorado Rockies selected Wolverine pitcher Carl Kaufman 77th overall last night in the MLB draft. Meanwhile, Jawan Howard dabs former St. Joseph coach Phil Martelli as his top assistant. And finally, Jeopardy! James' winning streak finally comes to an end last night. James Holzhauer appeared in 32 consecutive games and amassed $2,464,216. That is the second highest total amount in the history of the show. That is your Sports Center update. Once again, good to have you here. We're talking baseball pretty much the entire day. I'm going to have a couple of guests join me here in a few minutes. We're going to talk auto racing, but right now we've got baseball on the brain as we know the 16 teams who are going to be heading to the Super Regionals this weekend. One of them, the Michigan Wolverines. You look at that last four in-group, the last four teams that made the NCAA tournament, two of them are on to the NCAA Super Regionals, Florida State and now Michigan. Last night, Michigan beat Creighton in the Corvallis Regional Championship, a winner-take-all game. Creighton was arguably the hottest team coming into the tournament, winning 16 of their last 17. And Creighton came back to beat Michigan, really steal one from Michigan 11-7 the night before. Plus, Creighton jumped out to a 2-0 lead, later made it 4-1 last night. And that's when the Wolverines responded in a big way. They really pounded the Blue Jays around the mid to late innings. They scored five runs in the home half of the fourth. They took the lead six to four. They never gave it up. They scored another run in the fifth, then four in the sixth, and six in the seventh to break it open. Creighton just flat out ran out of pitching. Michigan's bullpen was deeper. They started Walker Cleveland last night, a left-handed Swiss Army type guy. Creighton, meanwhile, went with their ace. He was coming off four days rest. He was on a pitch count. He wasn't going to go over 60. They just flat out ran out of pitching. Michigan had played four previous games in that regional. Creighton had five. They just didn't have the pitching anymore to be able to compete with Michigan. And the Wolverines are good enough hitters. They were teeing off. By the way, Jordan Brewer was back in the lineup after missing the last couple of games. The Big Ten Player of the Year? It was good to have him back. Michigan erupts to take down Creighton 17-6, and they are on to the NCAA Super Regionals this weekend. So here are the Super Regional matchups. Michigan is going to take on the top national seed, UCLA. UCLA was able to get revenge against Loyola Marymount. They beat them last night to advance. Elsewhere, Oklahoma State is going to take on Texas Tech, a battle of conference opponents. Another conference matchup, this time the SEC. Arkansas will take on Ole Miss for the right to go to Omaha. And then this one. I said yesterday we already knew this was going to be a matchup. It's going to be in Baton Rouge. It's going to be the regional to watch. You have maybe the two most iconic coaches in college baseball up against each other. Paul Maneri in LSU against Mike Martin in Florida State. How about the year Mike Martin has had? It's really remarkable. His 40th season he has never missed the ncaa tournament the last time he failed to qualify as a one seed was 2011 they got in as a three seed this year they're one of the last four teams in the tournament and then they win a really tough regional in athens georgia mike martin is the sports all-time winningest head coach 2025 wins at the college level it is announced this will be his last year boy is he going out with a bang he will get a take on Pulmonary and LSU, a best-of-three series in Baton Rouge this weekend. That's going to be the one I'm going to be watching. I think a lot of you will as well. Elsewhere, you've got Vanderbilt and Duke. Duke, a team that seems to like playing with their backs against the wall. That's where they play their best baseball. Guessing Vanderbilt's going to win the first game. Wouldn't be surprised if Duke wins the next two. How about Louisville taking on East Carolina? The East Carolina Pirates out of Greenville, North Carolina. They have been one of the surprises of the college baseball world this year. They won their regional yesterday. They beat the Campbell Fighting Camels. Favorite nickname in college baseball this year, at least in the college baseball tournament. East Carolina looking to keep it going. They take on Louisville, who had to walk off against Illinois State yesterday, winning their regional, which they hosted. You've got Mississippi State. Again, a lot of breweries are going to be tuned into that game with Ethan Small. They will host Stanford in a best-of-three series to move on to Omaha. Stanford winning what I think was the toughest regional this year. 
And finally, North Carolina against Auburn. Two teams that have flown under the radar a little bit, but they probably shouldn't be flying under anybody's radar. Tell you what, beyond that, there was some shocking news regarding a team who was not in action yesterday and is not going to be in action later this weekend. And that came out of Lake Nebraska, where Cornhuskers head coach Darren Erstad announced that he is stepping down after eight seasons. He won 267 games. Nebraska was very successful under him. They were consistently a tournament team. They were consistently at the top of the league. Athletic director Bill Moose said that's what they want. That's what they consider being good. Getting to the tournament perennially and continue to be a force at the top of the Big Ten standings. And they were. Erstad did struggle in the NCAA tournament. They had a quick tournament weekend. They were in the Oklahoma City Regional. They failed to make that regional championship. They got bounced as a three seed, which means Erstad finishes his Husker career 2-8 and eight at the NCAA tournament. He was unpopular with a lot of the Nebraska fans, and I can't understand why. They were doing everything Bill Moose wanted them to do. This year they were in contention for the Big Ten regular season title until the last day. And then they made the Big Ten Championship, ended up losing to Ohio State. I'm starting to think Nebraska fans are just going to be perennially unsatisfied. Not just a football thing with them. Not just Tom Osborne spoiling football fans back in the 90s. And I don't believe that's why Darren Erstad retired. He was a major league player. He knows how to have tough skin. He's not going to let that get to him. He did say he was considering retiring for the last couple of years, spend more time with family. I believe him when he says that. I do believe he could coach elsewhere, and I would like to see him coach elsewhere because I think he has a lot to contribute to any program. (laughs) That wasn't me making a joke at Darren Erstad's expense. I really think he would be a great coach elsewhere. That is just our new transition here at ESPN-UP. Andrew Luck, Kawhi Leonard, their laughter reminding me that I need to move on uh, before we run out of time and transition to other stuff. So I tell you what, here's a few other happenings because there's been a lot happening within the last 24 hours you need to know about. First and foremost, Gerald McCoy has a new home. How about this? He gets kicked out of Tampa Bay essentially to make room for Adamic and Sue. So what does he do? He takes a pay cut to stay within the division. He is signing with Carolina. Signed him yesterday just after we signed off. I love that. It's a power move. You take a pay cut, you stay in the division, you show them twice a year why they shouldn't have let you go. Why you deserve to stay on that team over in Dominican Sioux. In the midst of an NBA Finals that he is somehow getting through, he just doesn't look right, but Kawhi Leonard is playing through the pain And not just playing, he's dominating through the paint. He's looking really, really good. Doesn't look quite right, but he looks really good. However, he's also going to battle Nike. He's taken Nike to court for what he says is unauthorized use of his image. Recently, Nike's come out with a new line of apparel. It features a claw. The claw logo is what they're calling it. Kawhi says that he designed that and that Nike's using it without his permission. So they're going to court. Kawhi versus Nike. After Kawhi versus the Warriors. And speaking of the Warriors, it's becoming a battle of attrition for them. We still don't know what the deal is with Klay Thompson. Will he play tomorrow night? Will he not? His hamstring's still bothering him, giving him tightness. You have Kevin Durant, who's probably not going to play tomorrow. Game four, more likely. Now they're going to be without Kevon Looney. The reserve big man out indefinitely with a cartilage fracture. So I tell you what, how big is it looking now that they get Boogie Cousins back? You get Boogie, you get Bogut. But now your bench is down to what? Livingston? Quinn Cook? Starting to become a battle of attrition for Golden State. I tell you what, though. If Steph gets hurt, I'm not wishing injury on anybody, but if Steph gets hurt, we might have a series. Again, we're not wishing that on anybody. Tell you what, how about this has been kicked around? We talked about quarterbacks a couple of minutes ago. We talked about quarterbacks chugging beer. How about quarterbacks trying to play an extra two games every season? Talks are intensifying about the NFL expanding its regular season from 16 games to 18. The Canadian Football League plays an 18-game schedule. To do that, the NFL would have to shorten the preseason. Talks are intensifying about this. It could really happen. Is that a good thing for NFL quarterbacks, however? There are 32 teams in the league. Last season, 16 starting quarterbacks played in all 16 games. So half the quarterbacks in the NFL did make it through the entire regular season last year. Things could get pretty ugly. Weeks 13 through 18, they would expand to if this happens. Things could get ugly. Could be seeing a lot of backup quarterbacks, but does that create a competitive market for the backup quarterback? Does that give guys like Mark Sanchez a chance to get back into the league? And do so on a permanent basis, not be a journeyman. 
Does that open a door for somebody like Case Keenum, maybe someone who's a little more on the cusp of playing more consistently, but isn't ready to be an everyday starter? Should that happen, it certainly benefits young quarterbacks, quarterbacks who never really made it, never really established themselves. But how about for the veterans, guys like Tom Brady, guys like Ben Roethlisberger, even Baker Mayfield. He's not a veteran, but he's an everyday starter. You don't have to be a veteran to be at risk of getting injured in the NFL, especially at the quarterback position. (laughs) I'm doing it, folks. I'm hitting the transition button. I'm not doing it just because I love hearing it. I'm a Minnesota Twins fan. I know we're up here in Brewer country, Tiger country. I'm going to treat myself. The Twins have the best record in baseball right now. 40-18, and no Twins team has ever started this well. Can they sustain it? That's going to be the biggest question. Offensively, they're back at full strength. Mitch Garver came back over the weekend. Nelson Cruz will be back tonight. They play Cleveland this evening, a struggling Indians team that currently sits one game below 500. Would it surprise you to know that the Chicago White Sox and the Cleveland Indians have the same record right now? They're both 29 and 30. Minnesota again, 40 and 18, top record in Major League Baseball. I love it. I haven't had many years like this. It's been a while since the Twins have been really good. 15 and 17 were good years. Pretty much anything between 2001 and 2010 was a good year. But nothing like this in a while. So I'm going to treat myself and I'm going to enjoy it here in the sports pen. The Minnesota Twins are running away with their division. They're going to win the Central this year. They have a 95-plus percent chance of doing so. Is the pace they're on sustainable? And are they for real? Are they really a team that's 40-18? and that's winning 69% of their games. The biggest argument against Minnesota right now is the division they play in. You see the power rankings. A lot of times they'll have the Twins somewhere like third. They'll be top five, but likely they're not going to be number one because people don't think they play in a tough enough division to be really good. They think about the Cleveland Indians the last few years. Outside of 2016 when they made the World Series, The Indians were just a slightly above average team. They were not that good of a team. Even though they ran away with their division, they played in a really bad division. The only really good Indian team was 2016. I think a lot of people see the Twins being that way. So the next time you're talking baseball with somebody, the Twins come up, you remind them, out of the 58 games the Twins have played so far this year, 14 have come against divisional opponents. Only 14 of 58. How many games have the Twins played against teams currently in playoff position? 19. 19 of the Twins' 58 against playoff teams as it stands right now. Only 14 against divisional opponents. They do see a lot of divisional opponents coming up this month. And if you think about that, the Twins should be getting even better than 40-18. and 18. Their winning percentage should go up. They haven't gotten to 40-18 and 18 because they've been going through the easiest part of their schedule. They're about to go through the easiest part of their schedule at 40-18. and 18. And they've stayed healthy. Again, they're at full strength offensively tonight. Michael Pineda, once he comes back, they should be at full strength in the pitching rotation. We owe you our last time out. I think that's enough baseball for today. When we come back, we're talking auto racing. I've got a couple of guests who are going to join me next in the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to The Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad to have you along. A couple of guests in the studios. We turn our attention to auto racing. Stan Whitler, the co-owner track manager of Sand Speedway, along with Kim Laternal. She is the promoter. Glad to have you both here. A special event this year coming up at Sands. 50 years, it's hard to believe. Glad to be here. Thank you for having us in. (laughs) Well, I mean, 50 years, it's hard to believe. And Stan, you and I were talking off air. It's just hard to believe that it's been around that long, yet here we are celebrating half a century with it. Right, it just doesn't seem possible. It seems like, uh, well, you're having fun while you're out there. Also, time passes real fast, I guess. So, yeah, 50 years is what it is. And racing ever since. First uh, quarter mile racetrack in the UP. Uh, Escanaba and Norway both had dirt. And when they built this one, they said we're doing asphalt, so... Tell me about what's going to be going on at the track this year, how you're going to commemorate the 50th anniversary. Sure. Everybody needs to know that we're moving to Sundays. That's a really big deal for us. We've been racing on Saturdays for a long time, and it used to be on Sundays. We're going back to Sundays. Everybody's so busy in the UP, we're going to be at a good time slot, 2 o'clock. I guess what we always say is we have a lot of special events packed in with our races. We have some charity events. We have some promotions as far as bringing in some other, we talked about the other tracks, 
We have a, our biggest event usually is a triple crown, and we have an event where Norway and Ken Ross both are invited to come to our track, and we have a series. Right now it's set up as a two-race series, which is Norway on August 16th and us on August 18th. And Ken Ross is having a really big event the week before, so they're still trying to pull it together to come see us. And we have a special event on July 14th, which has never been done that I know of. We're calling it the Ken's Crossover Event, where we're having the dirt cars from Escanaba come race on asphalt. And then in September, we're going to run on the asphalt with our, we're going to run dirt with our asphalt cars. Now, how does that work? Is it a simple modification where you can adjust an asphalt car to be able to run on dirt or vice versa? Right. The, the cars are set up just about totally different. I mean, uh, the, the weight distribution to the car, the tires, uh, offsets, the weight, it, it's, it's all different. So it'll be interesting to watch one car on the other, as, you know, on the other surface. It'll, it'll be fun. It'll be a blast. When does the action start? When are we going to get going on a weekly basis? Our, we open on June 9th, which is this coming Sunday, and we're going to run all the way through the end of August with our regular program. We are going to open our gates for people at 12 o'clock with time trials at 1 o'clock, racing on Sundays at 2. So we do have, I believe, 10 races, and we're going to have like maybe three times off, so you'll have to follow our schedule online. We decided that sometimes it's not best to have an event when someone else is having one, so we've taken several weekends off. But otherwise, it's um, three in June, all four Sundays in July, and then three in August. Can racing fans expect to see a lot of the drivers that they've come to know the last few years? Yes, actually, I think everyone is returning, and we do have probably about four or five that have been on hiatus or coming back. And we do have some cars from Escanaba that are building cars to come, come race, race with us this year. Are a lot of your drivers UP-based, or do you get them from all over? Uh, mostly UP-based. UP uh, you know, it's, it's expensive to race no matter what class it is, and traveling, uh, you, know, you, you know, you don't make a, a whole lot of money doing it, so you're not going to travel too far. But uh, it's, it's UP-based, and then we're also talking about different cars and stuff. This year we're introducing a class. Uh, it's more or less an experimental class. When we first started racing, you went to a junkyard, you bought a car, threw a roll cage in it, went out racing. Well, that changed over the years. Everything kind of become a little more specialized. But now we're introducing a class where that's what you do. Go to a junkyard, put a roll cage in it, and bring it out and race. Um, the rules are, are still in the making because we got guys building cars to do that. Uh, but if somebody's out there interested in, in building a car, they might want to come out and see some of these cars that these guys are doing on. A little bit more inexpensive. Tell me about some of the classes that you've got. Some of the ones you're bringing back in addition to the new one. Right. Yeah, well, we have two, two classes of forcers. Uh, we have a four-cylinder, we call it a stock tire class. Um, they have to run on street tires. We allow them to modify the cars a little bit just for safety reasons and stuff like that. And then we move up to the four-cylinder modified class where we let them go pretty much crazy with suspension and stuff. And we allow them to race on a... On a more or less a racing tire, uh, you know, and re-regulate tires and stuff like that. Then we move up to our super stock or street stock class. Uh, that's a rear wheel drive, full frame car, uh, full roll cage, uh, V8 engine, a uh, lot of fun. Uh, and then we move up to the modified class where it's a special built frame. Everything is, uh, you know, race on it, all, all the suspension parts and everything else. And, and then, like I said, then we're having our I'm not even sure what we're calling it. Uh, <laughs> not our junkyard class, that doesn't sound right. Uh, the new class where, like I say, they're, they're going to take a car, put a roll cage in it, and come out and run it. Uh, it looks like it's going to be great. Are you doing anything special, whether it be through promotions to commemorate the 50-year anniversary of the track? We are going to have a bigger race, um, a big race on the t July 28th weekend. We're already having a special with the vintage mods are coming from all over the UP and Wisconsin to join us. We thought that might be a nice tribute night to invite all the past racers, all the past fans, anyone over 50 years who had a relationship with the track. We hope to have a car show and have a lot of the um, veteran drivers come out and ride around in pickups, maybe have a meet and greet, some autographs, really celebrate that day with a big fanfare in the pits. We're hoping to have a barbecue, corn roast, some beer. We're hoping to have a big party then. Talking with Stan Whitler and Kim Laternal of Sand Speedway. They're about to open up the 2019 season on Sunday. Tell me about some ways you've seen the track grow over your time managing it. It's certainly a 50-year-old track. It's got to have some changes. Yeah, it's, it's got changes. Uh, I guess the biggest change is, uh, you know, the cars. The cars that we used to race, uh, 
it's it's changed through the years. Like I say, the just everything gets modified. You're a racer, you want to do something make it go faster. So over the years, everybody's been doing stuff to their cars. Um, so that has increased quite a bit. Uh, it's always stayed as a family event. Um, we'll all, uh, you know, young kids and stuff to come down after the races and get in the pits and meet the drivers and that kind of thing. Um, it wasn't a whole lot of that early on, you know, and when we went on, but now we open it up to the public after racing. Uh, as a matter of fact, we have some pretty young kids that are racers. <laughs> We've had some 13-year-old uh, racers that uh, have done really quite well out there. So that has changed too. It used to be you had to have a driver's license and all things. So we're getting more young people involved, and that's that's what the future racing is. Get the young people involved, uh, get them to come out here and have some fun. So you talk about the way the cars have been modified. Do you find that you need to update the track to go along with it? The, the track has stayed the same. Uh, you haven't had the, the opportunity to see it. It's, it is a very unique track. We've had guys come, uh, like insurance guys, that come to look at the track and stuff. Uh, it is uphill and downhill. The, the, the front straightaway is probably 60 feet higher than the back straightaway. And you come out of corner one, you go downhill, and the corner two down the back straightaway, and then you go uphill through corner three and four. Um, it's really unique. It's uh, slightly banked in one corner, not so much in the other corner. So it's a... Uh, it's a driver's track. It's a you know you have to set your car up. I've had a few guys that looked at it that from other tracks say it's more like racing a road course. You know <laughs> you have to you can't just set it up for hard cornering. You got to be able to go uphill downhill. So the track has stayed the same since the '69. Was that intentional, to the best of your knowledge? Did they try to make it some kind of a road course? Uh, no, I, I wouldn't. I don't know. I would hesitate to say why it ended up that way but that's the way it ended up <laughs> but it's it's been it's been uh it's been great for the guys that uh, you know have raced on it we've learned to love it uh first time racer on it uh might seem a little intimidated with uphill downhill but uh it is a lot of fun i want to circle back to when you talked about you've had some 13 year old racers do really well and i still think that's just so cool how you can race a race car but not have a driver's <laughs> license you know, you reach out to younger generations, what have you. Tell me about how you get the word out to them. Is there any kind of uh, youth sponsorship, encouraging participation, anything like that? Well, I would say that we spent a lot of time making sure that all of all of the big brothers, big sisters type things they know. I've been to NMU and they know. We've done a lot of promotions in front of Bothwell or Cherry Creek School. Just relationships with teachers, some of the kids, the students, the families, um, brothers and sisters of some of the current drivers, family members. I would say that through all of our advertising, both on the television, the radio, the newspaper, we're always encouraging people who are interested in racing to reach out to us, um, the Boy Scouts, the Girl Scouts. We've had a lot of participation with them. And we just draw them in. We've had free days where they can come in and just learn. Sometimes we say, do you want to go in the pits? Do you want to shadow a driver? So there's always opportunity for the kids to get involved. And people can just find us on Facebook, on our website. But yes, it, it really is a mentorship. A lot of the drivers, as as the years have gone by have said that it's more fun to watch than it even is to race. So we have several teams that just put kids in cars for tries. Um, if you show up early to practice and you know you can prove that you've either drove a dirt bike or you you know do mountain biking, anything that shows you have some agility and you want to maybe put on a helmet and have some coaching, um, they'll let you take it in the parking lot, they'll let you take a lap around the track, it's really up to you, but yes, the youth is really where it's at. So if someone's listening and they want to come out on Sunday, how do they go about buying tickets? Do they get them at the gate? Do they go to the website? What have you? All of our tickets are available at the gate. Um, we have not had a reason at this time to go online. We, you can follow your local radio stations. We have free tickets. You can win on there. Um, you can always reach us by email, though, through the computer if you have questions, but everything is at the door. Tell me about some of the events maybe that... Uh, would be going on for opening day. What does a typical opening day look like at Sands? <laughs> well, I don't know. It, it's it's different every no year. No such it, thing as typical. No, yeah, there is no typical day in racing, but a lot of cars are, you know, we got a lot of fresh paint. Some guys, typical racing, don't have them quite finished, so they might have duct tape on there just for the first race <laughs> because we didn't work on them hard enough. It's it's always a, it's an exciting show because it is the first one of the year for everybody there. You know, I mean, the drivers that have raced there before it's still the first race of the year and we've got new drivers uh it might be their first race so it's an exciting time it it's uh you know nothing really special events we run the heats and everything the same you know the very first race is we, is we do the 
the rest of them. So you gotta imagine the winter up here takes a toll on the track. Does it take a while to get it back in racing shape? Well, yeah, it, it's you know, in racing terms, the track that takes a while to rubber up. The racing groove where is where it's the fastest way around the track. There's nothing on it at all except asphalt. You know, once we start running, we'll start putting a little bit of rubber down, and it'll it'll make the groove a little better. But, you know, after the first couple races, uh, you know, over the day, it's actually starting to set up pretty good. Have you seen crowds continue to get better as you get the word out and get people more, you know, interested? Every year we get a different flavor coming in. Sometimes it's more university students. Sometimes we get more tourists. Um, we have attracted a lot of people from downstate and from Wisconsin to come do special events with us. So every year it brings something different. And our alliance with the other tracks, that's really where we've seen some growth is we've been working with Kinross for over four years now. We've been working closely with Norway for two years. The new piece is working with Escanaba, trying to see how we can mesh our, our cars, seeing if there's anything we can do to help grow ro like all of motorsports, not just short track here in the UP. It's how can we connect? Um, bringing the vintage mods across means that they are running probably four or five tracks in Wisconsin. They, they have a unit where they can run the same car at all those tracks. Well, we're, we're showcasing them bringing them up. So we're going to have new fans and who knows if that would transpire into something permanent, but bringing all these people to the UP for these events has definitely grown our attendance. Do you find that you're ever competing with racers downstate or in Wisconsin? Is it a bigger deal down there or anything like that? Not, not really. I mean, like I say, every, every racetrack has its region that they draw from. Uh, like Norway, you know, they're closer to the Wisconsin border, so they draw a few people from Wisconsin. Again, like I say, travel is, is a pretty big thing. You know, Kinross is down, you know, toward the bridge. Uh, that's, it's a long ways to travel. So we don't normally, you know, I mean, we're racing the same night. We're not really, you know, competing for racers. We do get together and race together, you know, special events, then it's a blast. Uh, but yeah, it, it's it's kind of, you know, your track region is, is where you're at. Truthfully, they've spread themselves out quite nicely, though. I mean, Norway runs on Friday night, now Kinross is running on Saturday, and we're running on Sunday, and then Eskinov is kind of filtered in on different dates with what they had at the fairgrounds, so it's a little bit choppier as far as an every week schedule, but a lot of us are independently on our own days, so fans can travel easier, you know, jump in the car and go on a trip. Um, all of those facilities now have camping, so people can get out and go and take their RV and go watch. The racers are usually in the garage fixing their vehicles, so they're not really on the road as much. Stan Whitler and Kim Laternal of Sand Speedway, they're getting set for opening day on Sunday. Appreciate you both being here. Great talking to you. Wishing you all the best this season. I might come out and uh, check you out sometime. Yeah, we'd be happy to have you. Like I yes. said, we'll put you in a seat. You come over early and uh, you'll get some laughs. <laughs> I'll take you up on that. You're better, yeah. Going to do it for today. Class dismissed. Until tomorrow, signing off from ESPN-UP-WZAM, I'm Tanner Hoops. Thanks for listening to the Sports Pen.